0: Chapter Thirteen of the Valley of Silent Men. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Thirteen. In that moment, Kent did not speak. He made no sound. He gave no sign of welcome, but stood in the middle of his cell, staring. If life had hung upon speech in those few seconds, he would have died, but everything he would have said, and more, was in his face. The girl must have seen it. With her two hands, she was gripping at the bars of the cell and looking through at him. Kent saw that her face was pale in the lamp glow. In that pallor, her violet eyes were like pools of black. The hood of her dripping raincoat was thrown partly back and against the whiteness of her cheeks her hair glistened wet and her long lashes were heavy with the rain. Kent, without moving over the narrow space between them, reached out his hands and found his voice. Marette? Her hands had tightened about the bars until they were bloodless. Her lips were parted. She was breathing quickly but she did not smile. She made no response to his greeting, gave no sign even of recognition. What happened after that was so sudden and amazing that his heart stopped dead still. Without warning, she stepped back from the cell and began to scream, and then drew away from him, still facing him and still screaming as if something had terrified her. Kent heard the crash of a chair in the detachment office, excited voices, and the running of feet. Marette Radisson had withdrawn to the far corner of the alcove, and as Carter and Pelly ran toward her, she stood, a picture of horror, pointing at Kent's cell. The two constables rushed past her. Close behind them followed the special officer detailed to take Kent to Edmonton. Kent had not moved. He was like one petrified. Close up against the bars came the faces of Pelly, Carter, and the special constable, filled with the expressions of men who had expected to look in upon tragedy. And then, behind their backs, Kent saw the other thing happen. Swift as a flash, Marette Radisson's hand went in and out of her raincoat, and at the backs of the three men she was leveling a revolver. Not only did Kent see that swift change, but the still swifter change that came into her face. Her eyes shot to his just once, and they were filled with a laughing, exultant fire. With one mighty throb, Kent's heart seemed to leap out through the bars of his prison, and at the look in his face and eyes, Carter swung suddenly around. "'Please don't make any disturbance, gentlemen,' said Marette Radisson. The first man that makes a suspicious move I shall kill. Her voice was calm and thrilling. It had a deadly ring in it. The revolver in her hand was held steadily. It was a slim-barreled black thing. The very color of it was menacing. And behind it were the girl's eyes, pools of flame. The three men were facing them now, shocked to speechlessness. Automatically, they seemed to obey her command to throw up their hands. Then she leveled her grim little gun straight at Pelly's heart. "'You have the key,' she said. "'Unlock the cell.' Pelly fumbled and produced the key. She watched him closely. Then suddenly the special constable dropped his arm with a coarse laugh. "'A pretty trick,' he said, "'but the bluff won't work.' Oh, but it will, came the reply. The little black gun was shifted to him, even as the constable's fingers touched his revolver holster. With half-smiling lips, Marette's eyes blazed at him. Please put up your hands, she commanded. The constable hesitated. Then his fingers gripped the butt of his gun. Kent, holding his breath, saw the almost imperceptible tensing of Marette's body and the wavering of Pelly's arms over his head. Another moment, and he, too, would have called the bluff, if it were that. But that moment did not come. From the slim, black barrel of the girl's revolver leaped forth a sudden spurt of smoke and flame, and the special constable lurched back against the cell bars, caught himself as he half fell, and then stood with his pistol arm hanging limp and useless at his side. He had not made a sound, but his face was twisted in pain. "'Open the cell door!' A second time, the deadly-looking little gun was pointed straight at Pelly's heart. The half-smile was gone from the girl's lips now. Her eyes blazed a deeper fire. She was breathing quickly, and she leaned a little toward Pelly, repeating her command. The words were partly drowned in a sudden crash of thunder, but Pelly understood. He saw her lips form the words, and half heard, ''Open the door, or I shall kill you!'' He no longer hesitated. The key grated in the lock, and Kent himself flung the door wide open and sprang out. He was quick to see and seize upon opportunity and swift to act. The astounding audacity of the girl's ruse, her clever acting in feigning horror to line the guards up at the cell door, and the thrilling decisiveness with which she had used the little black gun in her hand sent every drop of blood in his body afire. No sooner was he outside his cell than he was the old Jim Kent, fighting man. He whipped Carter's automatic out of its holster and covering Pelly and the special constable relieved them of their guns. Behind him he heard Marette's voice, calm and triumphant, Lock them in the cell, Mr. Kent. He did not look at her, but swung his gun on Pelly and the special constable, and they backed through the door into the cell. Carter had not moved. He was looking straight at the girl, and the little black gun was leveled at his breasts. Pelly and the wounded man did not see, but on Carter's lips was a strange smile. His eyes met Kent's, and there was revealed for an instant a silent flash of comradeship and an unmistakable something else. Carter was glad. It made Kent want to reach out and grip his hand, but in place of that he backed him into the cell, turned the key in the lock, and with the key in his hand face marette radisson her eyes were shining gloriously he had never seen such splendid fighting eyes nor the bird-like swiftness with which she turned and ran down the hall calling him to follow her he was only a step behind her in passing kedsty's office she reached the outer door and opened it it was pitch dark outside and a deluge of rain beat into their faces He observed that she did not replace the hood of her raincoat when she darted out. As he closed the door, her hand groped to his arm, and from that found his hand. Her fingers clung to his tightly. He did not ask questions as they faced the black chaos of rain. A rending streak of lightning revealed her for an instant. Her bare head bowed to the wind. Then came a crash of thunder that shook the earth under their feet, and her fingers closed more tightly about his hand. And in that crash, he heard her voice, half-laughing, half-broken, saying, "'I'm afraid of thunder!' In that storm his laugh rang out, a great, free, joyous laugh. He wanted to stop in that instant, sweep her up into his arms, and carry her. He wanted to shout like an insane man in his mad joy. AND A MOMENT BEFORE SHE HAD RISKED EVERYTHING IN FACING THREE OF THE BRAVEST MEN IN THE SERVICE AND HAD SHOT ONE OF THEM. HE STARTED TO SAY SOMETHING, BUT SHE INCREASED HER SPEED UNTIL SHE WAS ALMOST RUNNING. SHE WAS NOT LEADING JIM IN THE DIRECTION OF THE RIVER, BUT TOWARD THE FOREST BEYOND Kedsty's BUNGALOW. NOT FOR AN INSTANT DID SHE FALTER IN THAT Drenched AND IMPENETRABLE DARKNESS. There was something imperative in the clasp of her fingers, even though they tightened perceptibly when the thunder crashed. They gave Kent the conviction that there was no doubt in her mind as to the point she was striving for. He took advantage of the lightning, for each time it gave him a glimpse of her bare, wet head bowed to the storm, her white profile, and her slim figure fighting over the sticky earth under her feet. It was this presence of her and not the thought of escape that excited him now. She was at his side. Her hand lay close in his. The lightning gave him glimpses of her. He felt the touch of her shoulder, her arm, her body as they drew close together. The life and warmth and thrill of her seemed to leap into his own veins through the hand he held. He had dreamed of her. And now, suddenly, she had become a part of him, and the glory of it rode overwhelmingly over all other emotions that were struggling in his brain, the glory of the thought that it was she who had come to him in the last moment, who had saved him, and who was now leading him to freedom through the crash of storm. At the crest of a low knoll between barracks and Kedsty's bungalow, she stopped for the first time he had there again the almost irresistible impulse to reach out in the darkness and take her into his arms crying out to her of his joy of a happiness that had come to him greater even than the happiness of freedom but he stood holding her hand his tongue speechless and he was looking at her when the lightning revealed her again in a rending flash it cut open the night so close that the hiss of it was like the passing of a giant rocket, and involuntarily she shrank against him and her free hand caught his arm at the instant thunder crashed low over their heads. His own hand groped out, and in the blackness it touched for an instant her wet face and then her drenched hair. "'Marette!' he cried. "'Where are we going?' "'Down there!' came her voice her hand had left his arm and he sensed that she was pointing though he could not see ahead of them was a chaotic pit of gloom a sea of blackness and in the heart of that sea he saw a light he knew that it was a lamp in one of kedsty's windows and that marette was guiding herself by that light when she started down the slope with her hand still in his that she had made no effort to withdraw it made him unconscious of the almost drowning discomfort of the fresh deluge of rain that beat their faces. One of her fingers had gripped itself convulsively about his thumb, like a child afraid of falling. And each time the thunder crashed, that soft hold on his thumb tightened and Kent's soul acclaimed. They drew swiftly nearer to the light, for it was not far from the knoll to Kedsty's place kent's mind leaped ahead a little west by north from the inspector's bungalow was kim's bayou and it was undoubtedly to the forest trail over which he had gone at least once before on the night of the mysterious assault upon mui that marette was leading him questions began to rush upon him now immediate demanding questions they were going to the river they must be going to the river it was the quickest and surest way of escape. Had Marette prepared for that? And was she going with him? He had no time to answer. Their feet struck the gravel path leading to the door of Kedsty's place, and straight up this path the girl turned, straight toward the light blazing in the window. Then, to his amazement, he heard in the sweep of storm her voice crying out in glad triumph, "'We're home!' home his breath came in a sudden gulp he was more than astounded he was shocked was she mad for playing an amazingly improper joke she had freed him from a cell to lead him to the home of the inspector of police the deadliest enemy the world now held for him he stopped and marette radisson tugged at his hand pulling him after her insisting that he follow She was clutching his thumb as though she thought he might attempt to escape. It is safe, Monsieur Jimes, she cried. Don't be afraid. Monsieur Jimes and the laughing note of mockery in her voice. He rallied himself and followed her up the three steps to the door. Her hand found the latch, the door opened, and swiftly they were inside. The lamp in the window was close to them, but for a space he could not see because of the water in his eyes. He blinked it out, drew a hand across his face, and looked at Marette. She stood three or four paces from him. Her face was very white and she was panting as if hard run for breath, but her eyes were shining and she was smiling at him. The water was running from her in streams. You are wet, she said, and I am afraid you will catch cold. Come with me. Again she was making fun of him, just as she had made fun of him at Cardigan's. She turned, and he ran upstairs behind her. At the top she waited for him, and as he came up she reached out her hand, as if apologizing for having taken it from him when they entered the bungalow he held it again as she led him down the hall to a door farthest from the stair. This she opened, and they entered. It was dark inside, and the girl withdrew her hand again, and Kent heard her moving across the room. In that darkness, a new and thrilling emotion possessed him. The air he was breathing was not the air he had breathed in the hall, in it was the sweet scent of flowers, and of something else, the faint and intangible perfume of a woman's room. He waited, staring. His eyes were wide when a match leaped into flame in Mahat's fingers. Then he stood in the glow of a lamp. He continued to stare in the stupidity of a shock to which he was not accustomed. Marette, as if to give him time to acquaint himself with his environment, was taking off her raincoat. Under it, her slim little figure was dry, except where the water had run down from her uncovered head to her shoulders. He noticed that she wore a short skirt and boots, adorably small boots of splendidly worked caribou. And then, suddenly, she came toward him with both hands reaching out to him, "'Please shake hands and say you're glad,' she said. "'Don't look so—so so frightened. "'This is my room, and you are safe here.' He held her hands tight, staring into the wonderful violet eyes that were looking at him with the frank and unembarrassed directness of a child's. "'I—I I don't understand,' he struggled. "'Marette, where is Kedsty?' He should be returning very soon. And he knows you are here, of course?" She nodded. I have been here for a month. Kent's hands closed tightly about hers. I I don't understand, he repeated. Tonight Kedsty will know that it was you who rescued me, and you who shot Constable Willis. Good God, we must lose no time in getting away. There is great reason why Kedsty dare not betray my presence in his house, she said quietly. He would die first, and he will not suspect that I have brought you to my room, that an escaped murderer is hiding under the very roof of the inspector of police. They will search for you everywhere, but here. Isn't it splendid? He planned it all, every move, even to the screaming in front of your cell. You mean Kedsty? She withdrew her hands and stepped back from him, and again he saw in her eyes a flash of the fire that had come into them when she leveled her gun at the three men in the prison alcove. No, not Kedsty. He would hang you, and he would kill me if he dared. I mean that great, big, funny-looking friend of yours, Monsieur Fingers. End of chapter 13